0: And welcome to the roundtable. Bill Priestley here with you. And lots of things have been said about the rail industry over the course of the past month or so and what's true and what's not true. We have two individuals here that can quote, that can talk to those things as well. Joining us is uh, Harris Ligon, the CEO of Telegraph, coming to us from the Windy City, and Mike Bowden, Distal Head of Intermodal Solutions here at Freightwaves. Guys, thanks so much for joining us here today. Uh, I wanted to first talk about a couple of quotations. Uh, that have uh, come across the wires in the last couple of weeks. The first one was a letter to Secret- or a letter from Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack to the STB, which said the railroads could not be able to continue to operate without buffer for unexpected demand, make historic profits, and engage in enormous stock, uh, stock buybacks, all while providing subpar service to agricultural shippers and disregarding safety. Uh, strong words there from the secretary, secretary secretary excuse me of agriculture uh Harris uh, is it political posturing or does he have a point
1: look they, there's a there are a lot of words included in there um, yeah hard to kind of deconstruct that in, in the next you know 30 seconds what what I would say <laughs> is I, I think one one of the things that I, I always think back to you know, when I was on the, on the railroad itself was we made good use of, of what were called retention boards. And so in periods of, of a lull in demand, we would oftentimes, instead of laying people off, just uh, keep them on kind of in reserve or on the bench. And I think during the, uh, the COVID pandemic and the run-up to, to PSR being fully deployed across a lot of class ones, we saw retention boards get swept away. And I think many of the high-performing railroads that you see now, and CN being one of those included, have said, we're going to have retention boards. We're going to continue those into the future, regardless of where our volume volume levels are. And I think a a responsive railroad is a good railroad for the North American economy.
0: Mike, what do you think? Is is Secretary of just uh, kind of spouting hot air, or does he have a a point that, that needs to be made?
2: Well, I think it's a little of both. I mean, I think it's, it's it's some political posturing. I don't think the railroads are disregarding safety. I think that's um, a little over the top. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, the railroads have a legitimate complaint. If their uh, prices go up 5 6% every year and rail service gets worse, uh, shouldn't it be commensurate with, um, with the prices be commensurate with, with rail service? So I do think he has a, he has a point there and uh, you know harris has a good point about you know what are uh, railroads going to do going forward as far as having staffing levels that are appropriate for changes in demand i mean some of the railroads have talked about it, it basically made promises that they're not going to furlough workers but they do need to figure something out to, to deal with um you know, volatility and in, in carloads.
0: yeah we're definitely we're, we'll get to that right now in fact of course that letter was to the uh, service transportation board and then marty oberman comes back Right after that, the week later, by um, by saying we cannot have a thriving economy and we cannot compete effectively in the world market unless the railroads live up to the responsibility to provide, as Congress has defined it, a service upon service upon reasonable request. And this also gets into that. I and mean, he was talking about uh, Class One railroads lowering headcounts and 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 how uh, how much of, of a bad idea in terms of being able to provide that service. Uh, it comes out too. Um, Mike, you, uh, to Mike, you've you've brought up a chart here that, that we can allude to here in terms of what he's talking about. Uh, but what obviously he's is, is he making a clear point here?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think so. I mean, basically the rail um, you know staffing levels, which you can see in that blue line, usually those sort of scale up and down with the economy uh, as, as rail traffic uh, rises and falls. Uh, but they had a hard time, uh, you know, after the pandemic hit uh, to scale those resources back up. And it just sort kind of gets to the question of, you know, the railroads do have to provide a reasonable service. What is a reasonable service? I mean, how, how do you define that term? So I think that's something the, the STB is going to look at. And, um, you
1: know, different parties have different uh, interpretations of that.
0: Harris, you are shaking your head. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah you know what I, I actually agree with, with, with Mike here look folks uh the SDB has I think long uh you know really provided some interesting oversight as it relates to commercial obligations and you know pricing w- within the rail industry if there is a, a definition or legislation to be made on on r- what rail service actually means then let's see it let, let's see a definition let, let's let's see that outline let, let that be in the in the open air public. First is just using some broad, heavy-handed words and and the the waving of arms to talk about rail service. Let's actually get down to the nitty-gritty and talk about exactly what that is. I think railroads continue to provide a a really good service for the North American economy. I mean, let's face it, they have a strong common carrier obligation that I I think that they've done a fairly good job of, of honoring. I think the challenge here is when we really think about what service means and we really drive into that, and, and and mike laid out a good point right rail rates uh, you know it's like kind of taxes and rail rates there are two things that only are ever present and only go up i think one of the things that we forget when we make a comparison over to the trucking market is that railroads consistently reinvest billions of dollars into their own networks every year which is something i don't think a lot of trucking companies are doing for the nation's infrastructure
0: let me go a little bit farther with that and what you said there, Harris, in terms of uh, Marty, in his, uh, in his remarks, also hinted at 1980 uh, being, of course, the deregulation moment uh, for, for the railroads there as well. Um, is that, I mean, we're talking about big ar- waving big arms and making ho- open-ended threats, but uh, is, is that a point if you're going to define service? Is that uh, bringing some of that back?
1: Yeah, I, I think anybody who studied history and would look back at the period of regulation, that uh, that regulation and the deregulation that the railroads actually went through, I don't think any freight shipper at that time or any passenger traveling on the rail lines would have lauded the service that they were getting. In fact, I think regulation was actually a, a really low point for the entire industry. And I think when once we saw deregulation actually occur, what you saw was an improvement in service for both passengers and rail shippers across many different segments across the country. Of course, there was a ton of consolidation. There were concerns about monopolistic practices. But I think that's why the STB exists today, to make sure that those things are no longer happening. If we want to go ahead and introduce and, and evaluate what rail service means from a standardized you know, framework, I'd encourage us all to get together and do that. I think the big challenge is going to be how do you make that uniform across multiple providers and then how Mm -hmm. do you measure that and report that out in a very clear and transparent manner.
0: Mike, your your thoughts, same question.
1: Yeah, we're not going back to the days of of regulation,
2: uh, but there could be ways that uh, the railroads are regulated a little bit differently or or where some of the regulations change to make it maybe a little bit more balanced between railroad and and shipper-like. You know the STB is looking at reciprocal switching. I mean, that's something that could, um, you know, potentially increase competition in, in the railroad industry. I mean, they they addressed the change to the to the rate cases for small shippers to make it easier for those, those um, smaller shippers to bring rate cases uh, where there's a value of less than than, than four million dollars. So there there could be sort of small small changes. And I think the the point that Marty Oberman was making was this is 2023. It's not 1980. Um, mm-hmm. Anytime the, the, the railroads hear about a regulation, they say, well, we don't want to go back to the 1970s where there were standing derailments and the whole network was a disaster. And Marty Overmans saying, well, this has nothing to do with the 1980 or the 1970s. This is a completely different situation. The railroads are are you know, printing a lot of money and um, they, they should be regulated as, as such.
0: Okay, well, let's move on to the positive side here for the railroads in terms of what we've heard recently, Union Pacific, and the uh, Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen came up with an agreement uh, this past week. The agreement which still needs to be ratified by union membership calls for a schedule that would consist of 11 days on call and four days off. Implementation could take place within a year of ratification. This is, uh, again, uh, kind of in, in opposition to the 24-7-365 on-call movement uh, called a historic agreement uh, here. Uh, Mike, uh, what do you think of this? Is Could this be a game changer in the rail industry?
2: Yeah, I like it. I think it could be a game changer. I think that's a big reason why the railroads have had trouble working. It's not that they don't pay enough. I think they do pay enough. I think that um, you know, there's been sort of a different you know redefinition of of what it means to be a, a father. You don't have to just be a breadwinner. You also need to have sort of quality time with your family. Um, you're having four days off in a row that you know that are scheduled where you can you know schedule quality time. I, I think is a, is going to be a, a big deal for a lot of people.
0: Harris, same question.
1: Well, if Mike likes it. I, I I love it. I think one of the forgotten aspects of being a railroader is the fact that you're on call. You're 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 going to whether you work in the maintenance way department, you work in the car department, you work in train and engine employment, you're subject to call, and oftentimes that, is that 24/7, 365. Where that got out of whack was on the point that the, the networks were, were really hard to predict at that point. And so folks who maybe back in 2017, 2018, even leading into 2019 had a fairly repetitive or predictable schedule based on train operations, no longer had that. And so I think one of the unique things about this is it does give, I think it does give an entire industry the opportunity or gives them a playbook that they can operate from to give folks uh, an opportunity to earn a meaningful wage. But also have the balance of life that I think many of us oftentimes seek, and especially those of us that are parents.
0: Mike, as we kind of draw this to a close here, obviously we've heard the good and the bad, and 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 at least some of the some of the major points there as well. But right now, what do you think moving forward is the number one issue uh, problem in the industry that needs to be addressed as we go into the second half of 2023?
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really sort of, um, you know, scaling resources for changes in demand. I mean, the demand is so uncertain mm-hmm. and all of these things um, like, you know, not getting rid of furloughs or having different, you know, levels of staffing that are going to be more consistent. It brings up the question of, does, does the railroad have just a less flexible cost structure so it has more operating leverage now in the business model because they don't furlough workers when um, when traffic gets a little bit slow and then does that cause the whole industry to get re-re- re-re- um, revalued uh, downward by by Wall Street because now they have more operating leverage and is that going to bring in more uh, activist investors that that push for operational changes and then we're sort of maybe get back to where we started. So I think all of those things are kind of interesting uh, questions.
0: Harris, you've got about 30 seconds here. What do you think is the number one problem that the rail industry needs to address in the next uh, six months?
1: You know, I, I tend to think in opportunities, not problems, guys. So I think about all the dots on a, on a map that the railroads could potentially serve. And going back to the cost structure question, if the cost structure can be managed in a way that allows the railroads to serve more, more points on a map, more, more OD pairs, well, then there's going to be more business to be had. And so I think that's one of the opportunities that I think about in the back half of the year that the railroads could take a, a hard look at and get out their Excel spreadsheets and get after it. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing some new services come up in the next six months.
0: Hopefully, it's not Excel spreadsheets, but maybe something a little bit more advanced than that. Mm-hmm. Harris and Mike, thanks so much for joining us on this roundtable. Okay. Thank you. All right. We'll take a short come back after this with more FreightWaves Now.